and welcome to the Patientless Podcast. We discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly about real-world data and AI in clinical research. This is your host, Kareem Galil, co-founder and CEO of Mendel AI. I invite key thought leaders across the broad spectrum of believers and descenders of AI to share their experiences with actual AI and real-world data initiatives. All right. Hi, everyone. This is another episode for our podcast. Today's guest is, is not a household name. I was just telling him that before we get started. But his work has been the foundation of a lot of your day-to-day computing, from your internet search to the infrastructure that Google and Amazon runs with on to almost every AI engine that is working today. Um, his work has granted him the Turing Award. Interestingly, there is no Nobel Prize for computing. So it's the analog of, of, of Nobel Prize in computing. In 2013, he won Turing Award for his work on distributed systems. Our guest today is Leslie Alford, um, and we're super fortunate to have him joining our podcast. Thank you for making the time for this. Well, thank you. Um, so why don't we start by explaining what are distributed systems? I I've tried to educate myself on what that means. And the way you described it is it's the failure of your computer because of the failure of another computer that you're not even aware of its existence. So can we explain more about that and what are distributed systems and how does it affect computing and if there is anything in healthcare? Well, distributed computing means that uh, you're basically running a program that uh, uses more than one computer. Simple as that. <laughs> the, the, the work that you have done had to do with time because I believe one of the things that you've said is like um, the notion of time for two observers is not the same. And I, I'm, I'm still cannot understand that. And how does that relate <laughs> to distributed systems? Well, I guess uh, uh, I need to explain special relativity to you. <laughs> You have an hour. <laughs> okay, I can really explain it very simply. Uh, you may have read, you know, articles or books or something that says, "Oh, this is really strange," and meter sticks uh, uh, shrink when something is moving and all stuff like that. What the thing that is the basis of relativity that makes relativity different from Newtonian mechanics is the realization by Einstein uh, that what uh, it means for two things to happen at the same time is not some invariant notion that's the same for everybody. It depends on uh, two different observers will have a different notion of what it means for two things to happen at the same time if they're moving relative to one another. And that's it. And special relativity simply comes from that observation and the observation that no matter uh, these two people who are moving with respect to one another, when they measure the speed with which a light beam is traveling, they both get the same speed you know, 300,000 kilometers per second. And you take those, that fact and 
uh, basically the rest of uh, special relativity falls from that, follows from that. And well, somebody uh, built, uh, designed an algorithm for, well, it was an algorithm for a distributed database. And distributed database means you have a single database, but two people using different computers may be accessing the same data. And so you need some way of synchronizing them. In particular, if two people issue a command at about the same time, the system has to decide which one occurred first. If what is setting a value, changing a value, and the other is reading the value, they have to decide whether the read comes before the change or, or after it. And they had an algorithm for doing that. And what I realized is that the, his algorithm, their algorithm was a pair of people, violated causality. What that uh, means is that even though you know one command should have happened before the other, uh, they the commands, you know, for example, I might send you a message saying, "Hey, I've just uh, added you know a thousand dollars to your bank account. Now you can go withdraw it." And you try to withdraw it, and it's uh, the system says, "No, you can't." because it decides that your re withdrawal request came after my deposit request, even though, you know, it shouldn't have. Uh, and so that caused me to realize that uh, in order to be able to synchronize what's going on in the two different computers, you have to have a way for them to agree on uh, you know, what event, whether an event in one computer happened before or after an event in another computer. And I realized that there's an analogy between special relativity and distributed computing. The analogy is that uh, if you think in what uh, in special relativity, the notion of coming before means that one event comes before another if uh, communicating at the speed of light, the first event can influence the other event. Namely, it's possible for something that the existence, the first event to be communicated to the uh, second event. Well, there's an obvious analogy to that in distributed systems. Namely, one event comes before another if, uh, it's possible for that event to influence, the you know, first event to influence the second, not by sending light beams, but by sending messages, but, but not by light beams that could be sent, but by messages that actually are sent in the system. And then using that notion of causality, I was able to modify those two, the algorithm those two guys had so that it satisfies causality. Well, the other idea is that I realized that this applies not just to distributed databases, but that the whole key to building any distributed system, which is getting the different computers to cooperate with one another, uh, can be solved by an algorithm that globally orders the things that happen in the 
in different machines in a consistent way that they all agree on. So that's the partial order um, that's worked on. Yeah. Um, and um, this is this is fascinating because this is like um, an instance of consilience, like how we can abstract from outside of computer science from uh, special relativity into computer science. But I also heard that some physicists looked at your work and brought it back to physics. Yeah, there are physicists. Um, there's one particular physicist I uh, can't remember his name offhand who thinks that this is very important and uh, I've never been able to understand uh, what he's doing and uh, you know what the point of it is and so I can't uh, I can't say what uh, whether that is really you know some important physics or or not this is not uh, in some sense a you know the relation between physics and you know computing here is is should not be surprising because computers are basically physical devices and you know the laws of physics apply to them and one thing that has uh i think distinguished what things that i've done from what most other computer scientists working in this field of concurrent computing or you know concurrency is that they tend to view it as a mathematical problem you know, concurrency is a mathematical problem and i tend to view it as a physical problem you've got two things happening at the same time that's physics that has just inspired me to uh look at things in a in a way that you know different from a little different from the way other people have that is really interesting yeah and um, that's basically your work on, on temporal logic and in, on TLA. Um, can you talk a little bit more about TLA and how it revolutionized uh, uh, the work, even including some recent work on cloud computing at Amazon and other places, and how important it is to define systems in a formal way um, oh. to make sure that uh, you reduce the number of bugs and you would know if the system is actually doing what it's supposed to do? Well. Uh, I think it should be obvious that, uh, you know, we'd like to remove bugs from programs. Uh, you know, the, I don't know if you get as frustrated as I do at all of the stupidities in, that I see in, uh, in the programs that I use, but I got into it because concurrent algorithms are simply very hard to get right. And, you know, you can take a concurrent algorithm, you should say algorithms rather than programs. Concurrent programs are hard to get right, but I've been worked on, you know, I started working on algorithms, not programs. And you can write a, you know, just a, an algorithm in a few lines that, you know, looks sort of so obvious and it can have, a, you know, a very, it could be wrong. You know, simply it has a bug, uh, doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So I realized that I needed uh, a way of reasoning rigorously about uh, concurrent algorithms. Well, I guess the basic thrust of what I did in the, in the course of you know, 10 or 15 years was come around to the realization that reasoning about algorithms, reasoning means mathematics. 
And if I want to reason about something mathematically, the best way to, I mean, to do it is to describe it mathematically. And I basically developed a way of describing algorithms, particular concurrent algorithms, mathematically. And I discovered that it really worked well. I mean, the TLA is the particular way I just, just found that makes it work well for both describing mathematically a concurrent algorithm and proving things about it. And, you know, while that was going on, people also began to realize that uh, this, we started out proving prop things properties of particular algorithms. But then people started worrying about, well, what is exactly is this algorithm supposed to accomplish? And so we also started looking at the problem of how you describe precisely what it means for this algorithm to be correct. And when you describe the, the algorithm correctly, and then you describe what it's, I'm sorry, when you describe the the algorithm mathematically, and then you describe what it's supposed to do mathematically, then its correctness becomes a you know a very simple mathematic well principle simple mathematical formula, namely that uh, the formula that describes the algorithm implies the formula that describes what it's supposed to do, and so everything gets reduced very beautifully to mathematics. But I realized that this way of thinking about, first of all, about mathematically, about what something is supposed to do is useful in practice because when people build distributed systems, the first thing they should do is figure out what that system should do. And what a system should do, especially when it comes to a concurrent system, is, I mean, can be a subtle matter. And it really helps building the system to, you know, to get it right. I mean, I noticed that when people were describing, uh, when engineers were describing uh, standards for, you know, some kind of communication standards or, or something like that, you want to have, you know, a precise notion of, of what it means. So two people, you know, two people can go off uh, if it's a communication standard and build, you know, separately build the systems and, you know, and if they follow the standard correctly, you want to make sure that they will do, you know, what, you know, what they're supposed to do, but the two systems will work together properly. Uh, and then also I realized that algorithms, well, the people are writing programs Something Tony Hoare said, uh, wrote years ago that I didn't understand at the time. He said, inside every big program, there's a little program trying to get out. <laughs> and what he realized, what he meant, and I confirmed this with him uh, a few years ago, is that inside every algorithm, or I would even say not inside of it, but what that algorithm is trying to do is implement, what the program is trying to do is implement an algorithm, a more a simpler, you know, more abstract thing that 
uh, and if that algorithm is correct, then, and you correctly implement it, then the program will be correct. And that the best way, in some sense, to write the program is you write the algorithm first, and then make sure that the algorithm works right, and then you can then know that, or, that if you implement it right, uh, then the program is going to work right. I think that's why you said writing is nature's way of showing you how stupid or, so, or like how flawed your thinking is or something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, that's actually, that's a quote from somebody else, but, uh, the quite quote is writing is nature's way of showing you how sloppy your, how your thinking is. And my addition to that is math is nature's way of showing you how sloppy your writing is. <laughs> so, uh, you know, before you write a program, you do some thinking about, you know, what it's going to do and, and, you know, what, you know, and how it should do it. But you should write that, <laughs> you know, you should write, you should not, you know, just think, <laughs> because uh, it's easy to fool yourself when you're just thinking that you've, uh, you know, what you're thinking makes sense. But if you start writing it out carefully, then... That's when you discover that it's nonsense. You know, you, you know, you've made a mistake, or what you're saying, you know, doesn't work, or or something. And uh, if you writing things in math is, is first, it's more precise, so uh, it makes it. You know, you can actually, you know, prove whether what you're doing makes sense. And also you can build, because it's precise, you can build tools to check its correctness. And so that's what you know, TLA is for. It's basically for writing, uh, for writing down precisely the thinking that you should do before you write the program. And uh, then check that this thinking, that this algorithm, I, I, I don't call it an algorithm anymore because when people think about algorithms, they think about you know, things that are in textbooks. But those are the algorithms that, you know, the, the algorithms that go into programs, you seldom find them in a textbook because you know, they're just used for this particular problem. Uh, so I, you know, uh, at the moment I'm calling them abstract programs, but uh, it's like an algorithm. It's something that's higher level, more abstract than the program, and it's something that you implement with the program. You you have very famous quotes around, um, or like thinking thoughts around that programming is not coding, and an algorithm without a proof is conjecture. Um, and seems that this is within the same theme of, of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess, you know, what that reveals is that, you know, I was trained as a mathematician <laughs> and uh, just sort of slipped into computer science. 
but in, in today programming and coding are almost synonyms um and there isn't like really a, a clear distinguishing between someone who's writing a program versus someone who's just implementing and and, and coding that that program yeah well what i've said uh uh is that or what I've been recorded as saying <laughs> is that, uh, you know, coding is to programming what typing is to writing. Uh, now, that's, uh, it's not a terribly accurate metaphor because coding involves, you know, thinking more than, you know, and typing, you know, is just a mechanical action. But there's a kernel of truth in that, in the sense that, uh, Coding should be the easy part of programming. And the hard part of programming is sort of figuring out what the program should do and then figuring out how it should do it. And the metaphor that I've just stumbled upon and I think is better is that a program is like a book and the code is like the words on the page. Now, the code is written in a particular language. But if you take the book and you translate it into a different language, it's still the same book. And it's the same book because the ideas, what it's expressing, are the same. And if you want to, so if you really want to talk about what the book uh, well, we were talking about books, you know, you know, War and Peace or something. We don't have any better way of talking about, you know, what this book is really about other than by, you know, writing cliff notes or something, but, you know, in some natural language. But because what programs are about should be precise, there's a better way. We don't have to talk about them in programming languages we can talk it's we can talk about it in math because that is a nat that is a language that is specifically designed to express the kinds of things that the ideas that are behind uh many of the aspects of programming it's particularly the idea of what it means for this program to be correct and so that's now my the way i you know will try to sell tla is that uh it's independent something that's independent of you know the particular implementation you know the particular code you write it's telling you what's in, you know, explaining the essence of what your program is doing. Now, there are uh, other ways of doing that have been proposed. And a lot of them are really good for what I call traditional programs, programs that are sequential programs. They, you know, do one thing at a time. And what they do is they, you know, take some input, compute and produce an output. Uh, I call those a traditional program. And there are some, you know, really nice ways of, of doing that. But those ways don't work for concurrent 
algorithms, concurrent programs, but, you know, that don't just do something that simple, that have, first of all, they generally run forever and they're interacting with their environment. They're not just, you know, producing an answer. And secondly, uh, they don't do things one at a time, but they enter, you know, the different pieces, inter, you know, different processes interact with one another. And so I had to develop something that was different from these methods that were developed for uh, traditional programs. Although the ideas, you know, uh, came from things that were done for traditional programs, but needed to be extended uh, in, in some ways. So it's, it's uh, as, uh, as a physician, I can't help but think of like the analogy of a human. So I, as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking of a program as the whole like physiology of a human or like the whole human body. And every mm -hmm. algorithm or abstract program, as you said, is an organ and they're acting in a concurrent way in, in separate, in, in, they're acting separately, but also in concurrency to, for the body to kind of live and, 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 and do what it's supposed to do. Basically. Okay, no, well, it's close, but what the or different organs are the different processes that are running concurrently. And the algorithm is a description of uh, how they're cooperating. But it's a higher level description instead of talking about, you know, individual nerve pulses or, you know, individual blood cells or something. You're talking about, uh, you know, the brain gives the stomach, you know, that the, the gets information from the, uh, you know, what is it? Your, your throat, that, you know, something is heading that way and it sends, you know, that information goes to the brain and that information is sent to the stomach, which does something which will then, you know, send some kind of hormonal signal to something else. And uh, so the algorithm is like this, high level view of, of, of how it works. And the code, you know, the actual nerve fibers and blood vessels and cells and stuff that the are signal doing it. Is being passed. Mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. I think for our audience also, it's a good analogy. Um, so you're also touching on or proposing math as an abstraction of all programming languages. That like, for example, if you're an author writing a novel, uh, it's figuring out the characters and how they interact with each other on a very high level, regardless of whether you write it in English or French. Like you will mm -hmm. enjoy war and peace in French or in Arabic or in Hebrew or yeah. English the same way exactly, right? Mm -hmm. So math is a higher level representation. It's like a form of interlingua, uh, a term we use in machine translation as like all languages are like, there is one language originally that all languages kind of evolved and mutated from. Um, and you're talking about like the thinking that that math is kind of the that you need to learn math. And you mentioned that if if you define the program mathematically or the behavior of the program before even you write the code, uh, that can give you ideas about edge cases or have actually even write a better code. I'll give you up something you missed said a couple of words that I missed mm -hmm. right just at the very end. Yeah, it said like um, when you when you write the program, um, 
mathematically first, like you define it, let's say TLA plus, mm -hmm. uh, you define the formulas that say this behavior of the system is acceptable. And those behaviors mm -hmm. are not, or these are only the acceptable behaviors that it could open your eyes into building the program in a much better way. Like it can't, like as opposed to starting with writing the code and then writing the unit test, which most people do today, write the code, write unit test and integration test for it. What you're saying or what you mentioned with TLA is first write the formulas in math, make sure that these are the acceptable behaviors, but that could also influence the way you can write the code itself. Well, there's this sort of view uh, that people sometimes give that, you know, first, you know, you start with what the program is supposed to do and you don't care at all about, you know, how it's being going to be implemented. And then you write this description and then you say, okay, now I've done this. Uh, now let's see how I can implement it. The real world doesn't work that way. You have an idea because it's very easy to specify something to, you know, say the program should do something that's impossible or that's simply going to be too expensive. Mm -hmm. So in practice, you generally have an idea uh, of, you know, roughly what it's supposed to do and roughly how it's going to do it. And the actual process is a, uh, it's an interaction between these two. Uh, the the cool thing, you know, a cool thing about TLA is because uh, you know an algorithm is a mathematical formula, and you know what it's supposed to do is a mathematical formula. So you can describe what it's supposed to do as a higher level algorithm, uh, and then how it does it you know, is a, you know, the general algorithm, the sort of the general idea of, you know, how it's going to, the computer is going to work, how the, how the program is going to work, you know, can be uh, a lower level algorithm described mathematically, and then that can then be coded. And what happens in, in actual practice is that this, uh, this second layer of, of algorithm is becomes a useful design document. And it's not, it, it generally tells you the really the important things about how the program should work. And, and, and more precisely, uh, in TLA, what you use it for generally is to, to explain those aspects of the program that involve communication between the different parts, the, between the different pieces, between the different things that are acting concurrently. Uh, and the reason, uh, important reason for doing that at the high level is that those things are A, hard to get correct, and B, hard to detect the errors at the lower level in the code. 
because they're hard to test for because there are concurrency introduces so many more possibilities because there's so many more orders in which different things can happen in different pieces. And in testing, you're unlikely to be able to catch all of them. In particular, because you're not testing on the real system, the particular orderings of things that you test are not likely to be the same as the ones that will occur in the real system. And therefore, you can get, you know, you're very likely to get bugs that don't appear in testing, but appear in the real system. And those can, in fact, be really hard to, to, to uh, figure out what's going on. I mean, I know of cases where in order to try to, you know, there's been a, you know, a bug that they haven't been able to find. And so what they did was to write the high-level TLA description of what the system is supposed to be doing and seeing if that bug occurs. And they then will you know, have found the bug at the high level and say, oh, and then they know, you know what the problem is in the program. Well, of course, if they started with this high level, they would have found that bug before you know, writing all this code and you know, going to the trouble of, of debugging. Uh, a colleague of mine uh, gives a talk on TLA that's uh, it's titled, How to Save Two Hours of TLA with Two Weeks of Debugging. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned Tony Hoare, uh, who did core logic, and you work you work on logic. You work on temporal logic and merging it with um, logic of action, getting TLA obviously. Um, have you thought about working in, on logic and reasoning for AI purposes? No, uh, because. You know why? Well, uh, logic, uh, you know, logic means formalism. And, and I don't start with the formalism. I mean, TLA came from my years of experience of reason, actually writing algorithms and trying to prove that they're correct. And so the logic came after, you know, after the practice, you know, after... Uh, how it should be done. And, you know, I knew things were right because, you know, when I was able in TLA to make precisely rigorous the kind of reasoning that I had been doing. Now, I can't think about a logic for AI without having done AI. <laughs> it's that simple. So um, I can give you an example of what I'm working on, for example. Um, so let's say you got a patient received had cancer and you got the date of diagnosis and then you got the surgery for that cancer and the date of surgery and you got that the date of surgery is before the date of cancer so that's obviously illogical right and your partial order actually would work this way like it can there is an application with a lot of massaging of that technology into um let's say a knowledge graph not a multi, not a multi system or distributed system, but maybe a multi multi agent system, like multi cognitive agent system, where each one of them has a certain belief of let's say what happened to a patient, and there would be conflicts, there would be paradoxes. They can be detected using something like TLA or something like temporal logic or the different species of temporal logic. Right? There are applications that I find 
your work very inspiring in that domain. Um, you said once that um, you like to work on conflict more than collaboration in terms of like, uh, on conflicts more than collaboration in terms of like less on parallelization or concurrency and more on basically something that uh, backs the system. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how you work on Paxos system have revolutionized uh, distributed systems yeah. and the banking and transactions? Well, hold it. You went from two things, you know, from <laughs> AI <laughs> to Paxos. <laughs> and which do you want me to talk about? Yeah, well, if you want to talk about AI, please talk about AI. Well, what I want to do is not talk about AI, but many years ago, actually, when I was in grad school, I had a roommate who was uh, you know, studying linguistics. In fact, he's George Lakoff, who's become a very well-known linguist. And uh, you know, what he would do is he was, he was actually taking a class, I think, from Chomsky, mm -hmm. uh, who was at MIT. And uh, the, he would come and say, I want to do this. Is there any math that can do it for me? And you know, what I had to tell him is that you know, math doesn't solve the problems for you like that. What you have to do is figure out, you know, what the solution to your problem is. And then you can say, well, is there a math that will, that I can then describe this solution in? And then maybe, you know, I could then use the math that's, that's been uh, developed. So the advice I would give to you, start with, you know, some very particular problem, you know, and, and as small as you can make it or as easy that, you know, that would make a, a solution that for which a solution would teach you to something, teach you something, then figure out how are you going to solve this problem? You know, what the problem is, how are you going to solve it? And then when you see the solution to this very simple problem, say, well, how do we generalize this? What is the, you know, what is the math that's going on under there? But in some sense, don't start with the problem and then look for the math that's going to give you a solution. Look for the solution and then say, you know, to a very simple problem and say, what is the math that's behind the solution? Yeah, then you formulate it with math, yeah. That, that makes uh, perfect sense. Okay, now, what did you want to know about Paxos? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, the idea of a multi-systems, uh, multiple systems working together on one consensus. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find a lot of applications to that in also in knowledge representation and in, in AI. Uh, but if you want to talk about it from a distributed system perspective. Here's the super interesting thing um, that I've been noticing, right? Everyone claims that they are doing AI or they know something about AI or they want to talk about AI. But actually people with knowledge like you, you sent us an email, we asked you a lot of questions, some of which were about AI. And one of your comments were, I don't like to speak about things that I don't understand or something like around those lines. And I was like, wow, you're saying that, but when we're, we, we go actually in the industry, we're seeing the opposite where everyone's claiming that they know something about the AI or two. Yeah, yeah that's... Uh... Well, there's something called that I call Lamport's law. You may have heard of Peter's principle, uh, which is that people get promoted uh, to their level of incompetence. If they do a good job at something, then they get promoted. And if they do a good job, they get promoted. And when they do a lousy job, they stay there. <laughs> well, that's actually a uh, 
corollary of uh, Lamport's law, which is that uh, the, qualif the qualifications for attaining a position are uncorrelated to the qualifications of actually performing the tasks of that. Uh, so, and the example that that I use that you know is relevant here is that you know because I've you know done some because I've gotten a Turing Award for getting you know doing some particular work, I get invited to speak about all sorts of things that I know nothing about and I'm completely incompetent to talk about. Uh, and I have the good sense to uh, decline those invitations. I, I, it, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I, I think uh, I, I, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the hour and I want to be conscious of your time. But one other thing that I thought was very interesting when I was looking into your talks and, 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 and writings is you're saying scientists will find more things in the industry than staying in academia or in, in the lab. Um, and it was almost like kind of an invitation for scientists to move towards industry rather than stay on, on the academic side of, of the equation. Well, remember that that was a comment I made about my career, which was at a particular point in time in a particular discipline, you know, namely computer science. For example, I see no sign that a physicist needs to go to industry in order to, uh, you know, elementary particle physics don't take that you know too seriously you know especially not in disciplines unrelated to computing so it's not an abstractable algorithm uh to borrow them <laughs> to borrow like uh, what we're talking about um we're coming into the end of the hour we're super appreciative for you like taking our invitation we just sent a cold email we actually were super surprised when we got the response back and it's just, I learned a lot in the process of what it means to actually be a good scientist just from our interactions. And I'm super appreciative for you being generous with your time with us today. Well, happy to uh, talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.